live from the Livingston campus of Rutgers University. This is RLC WVPH in Piscataway. 90.3 The Core. Independent community radio from Piscataway High School and Rutgers University. Learn more at thecore.fm. Many voices, one station. This is 90.3 The Core. the matter the public affairs forum of 90.3 the core where we discuss issues that are important to Rutgers and the Piscataway community I'm Chelsea Carter this week on core of the matter we have Mary who will be talking to Tina Wisehouse about the issues of the Keystone pipeline as well as Mark who will be speaking with Frank Greenangle about the health issues related to substance abuse so you if you have any questions about what you hear tonight, you can always call 732-445-9300 or you can send us a core request. Either way, we'll try to answer your questions and this is Core of the Matter. Frank is a counselor, a recovery counselor with ADP, Counseling ADP and Psychiatric Services. He also uh, works with the Recovery Housing Program here at Rutgers University and many more. You are a man of many talents. When I looked you up on LinkedIn, I was, I was pretty impressed. And former service member, I believe, too, as well. Oh, uh, that's correct. Uh, well, thank you for previous service and uh, continued service here at, at Rutgers campus. Um, but, you know, in the so I want to talk about the article that was written in the Targum about the rise in opiate use of on college campuses, even. And we know, it was particularly focused here at Rutgers. Could you just describe the state of opiate use? First of all, like what it is and how it's being used now on campus and what that um, and how that has maybe expanded in the last couple of years? Yeah, the rise of opiates has been uh Geometrical. When I when I first became a drug and alcohol counselor uh, in 2004, so much of the work I was doing was in alcohol, marijuana, uh, cocaine, and heroin. And with younger people, it was uh, almost exclusively alcohol and marijuana. I mean, yes, you'd get people that experimented with LSD or ecstasy, but for the most part, it was the big two. And I worked at uh, both an inpatient rehab in the inner city and uh, a very wealthy, uh, uh, an outpatient rehab in a wealthy community in West Jersey. And starting in 2005, uh, I started seeing adolescents uh, coming in on a drug called uh, Oxycontin. And, uh, and people would come in, you know, they'd often start on Percocet or Percodan. 
And I and, came and Oxycontin is one of the painkillers that's most commonly abused. I'm actually from Ohio, and I know in the southern Ohio area that Oxycontin abuse is, I think it's one of the highest regions or has one of the highest abuse rates in the country. But this is the transition then from, I guess, what people would consider lesser or weaker drugs, drug like marijuana, alcohol abuse, and now into hard prescription drugs. Is that the trajectory that we're kind of seeing? Yeah, and in some, yes, uh, but in some ways, people just bypass marijuana and start right with uh, opiate painkillers. And you know, you mentioned uh, Ohio. Ohio has actually been decimated, and they're one of the states that came out with uh, a pretty early uh, prescription drug abuse plan. And uh, there's actually great things been doing uh, on the college level out there at Ohio State uh, and with treatment centers. And so, you know, everyone's on board there. And out in Ohio, it's really a nonpartisan issue, which is so you can be you know pleased about the. Uh, Called the Buckeye State. Yeah, you can be pleased about the Buckeye State. Do I do so? When you say that, do I get the sense then that this issue has become partisan in New Jersey to some extent, or is that not the case? Um, it's not. You know, there's there's an issue that I want to talk about. I think on, on the second half that's become partisan, which is extraordinarily frustrating for me. Sure, and uh, and and that's been one of the big thing. Uh, the big thing about this fall, one of the big things I've been pushing this fall is um, to override the governor's veto of a law. But again, I think we'll talk about that after the break. Sure. Well, let's let's then let's focus back on Rutgers because in the article, I think one of the it was actually an two alarming statistics that I saw from in in the article. First was that the twelve percent rise in opiates. Um, I'm not, you know, just considering the substance we're talking about, I think any increase is probably alarming. Double-digit growth over the last year seems uh, quite alarming. So I'd love to have you talk about that. And then um, with specific transitioning to the recovery housing program, um, it seems that a lot of students are getting hooked earlier. And by the time they get to college, if they don't have help getting sober or getting off of opiates, it's something like a one in five chance of recovery. So could you... Kind of explain a little bit about that, the rise in opiates on campus, and then talk about, the, I yeah. guess, what, what prevents students who come in with drug abuse problems from getting the help or being able to get sober by themselves. So the big thing is that, and, and, you, and I, you know, I digressed away from, from the, the, the first part of your question before. I'll try to stay on topic. No, that's a, is, that's um, okay. People are getting introduced uh, to these opiate painkillers, and and the main drug is oxycodone, and there's there's also um, hydrocodone, which is Vicodin, but the main drug is oxycodone, and from that we get oxycontin, Percocet, Percodan, uh, Roxy, uh, and people often get introduced them to their, their dentist, you know, like so. Uh, High school and college age students, they get their wisdom teeth taken out. They have uh, root canals, and so they get Percocet or Percodan, which is like 3.5 and 5 and 7.5 milligrams. And that's really their first experience. But they may have had, uh, some people have a sports surgery, and so they get a harder drug like Oxycontin, which could be 10, 20, 30, 40, uh, 80 milligrams. So it used to be 160, but they shut that down. And so... You know, I, I was I was never been a fan of the term gateway drug for marijuana. Um, you know, this idea that marijuana was a gateway drug to try harder things. Um, I I disagree with that notion. Uh, but with but with oxycotton, it absolutely is a gateway drug. And the reason why we know that is because for about uh, forty years, New Jersey has been keeping track of uh, admissions and detox programs, inpatient programs, and outpatient programs in the in this state. And for the first 40 years that we kept track of this data, the number one reason why someone went to detox and patient or outpatient was for alcohol. In 2011, that changed and it was opiates. 
And so we went from alcohol from 1970 to 2010 was the number one reason. And and in 2011, do we think? Do you do you think that perhaps it's in partly due to? um, And I'm just speculating, so I would love your perspective on it. Is it? an over prescription or an over utilization. I feel uh, I've had my wisdom teeth pulled. I've had um, sports surgeries, and it seems to that the the willingness to write a prescription for young people for such hard or such serious painkillers for young people it, it seems very. And I'm no doctor, so maybe that is the only appropriate medication. Um, so I'm not trying to make a, a judgment call on that. But is it the over prescription or is it just the nature of drug use in general is it a more of a societal issue? I should probably shouldn't have said societal issue because that's a gateway question in itself. There's but a lot of um, if lot you of could pe- pin it down to maybe one or two things that have maybe led to the increase of that, uh, I want to yeah. I want to blame a whole lot of people. Yeah. But, uh, I, I think so. I'll, I'll try to go with four. I'll try okay. to go with four. Sure. Um, I'm I'm still irritated at the Clinton administration in 1998 for advertising. Uh, being uh, approving the advertising of uh, prescription drugs on TV. So when I was little, we you didn't see ads on TV for you know Lipitor or Viagra or you know any sure. of the other uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, and then that changed. So so we we've we've moved every year. We move more and more uh, deeper and deeper into a culture that if anything's wrong with us, we take pills. So instead of you know healthy diet, instead of exercise. Um, Instead of doing things that are preventative, we take we take pills, and so uh, so the painkiller thing that, that that's just a result of kind of the way our medical system works and American culture works. A doctor's absolutely overprescribed. You know, they're pushed by pharmaceuticals to prescribe, and they do. Uh, the number one reason why people go to doctors now in America is for pain management. That's that's crazy. Uh, that's the number one reason why people go to doctors, and. So they over people. People ask for them. They push the doctors. The doctors overly prescribe. Um, uh, the amount of uh, pills they get prescribed each month. It's like uh, it's something like uh, sixty painkillers. Um, uh, sixty different I, I types like of painkillers. No, I think it's like I think it's it's something like sixty pills uh, per like American person. I mean, it's a it's a ridiculous amount of per wow. like adult American you know per month. Wow. And so I mean, way over. Uh, what is this the regular dosage for even one person because there's people getting multiple multiple doses out there um, so let's th- so let's think about the implications that has in at, at Rutgers so you have an exorbitant um, amount of prescriptions being written you have clear access then to drugs and unfortunately we see that the opiate use is up 12% and students come to to the Rutgers campus before they get here in college they come with an addiction problem. So how does the recovery housing program fit in? I know you have 15 students uh, from the time of the article, 15 students enrolled in the recovery housing program. I have 35 in New Brunswick and three in Rutgers, Newark. Oh, okay. So it has gotten exponentially bigger since the last time I saw it. I read in the, in well, the article. One of the things is uh, I've gotten used to being misquoted in uh, newspapers and magazines. <laughs> okay. and so I just I just deal with it. Then I well I am just I am the messenger, so we can we can blame other uh, Rutgers affiliations for Absolutely. that. That will remain nameless right now, um, but were mentioned earlier, unfortunately, in the show. Um, so thirty five in New Brunswick, three in the Newark campus. Just describe what when you go to the what they're what the purpose of the recovery housing program is and then how um, what are some of the services that are offered there for the students Um, so if you're listening right now and if you feel like or you know someone in need of help or if you yourself need help then you can you you sort of know what is available to you here in the area yeah mark you you say that the uh 
You're absolutely right with the with the twelve percent statistic, though, and that's just in the last year. In the last four years, it's forty four percent in New Jersey, and that's not so four years forty four percent in four years. So we're four, three three and a half times the national average in. If we're up forty four percent, that we or is oh, it up forty no, four? No, that's that's really. I mean, nationally, our numbers, our, our heroin, our opiates are much stronger than um, other states. Uh, but I mean, the rise is everywhere. But for and I don't know what the national figures are, but I know it's forty four percent in four years and twelve percent in the last year. And um, the big reason is is because of the prescription painkillers. And the problem is when kids come to school, uh, you know, the, these pills they, they maybe they get their their insurance company, um, uh, but. You know, if you're if you don't have a prescription, you're going to pay about a dollar a milligram. So you're paying about twenty dollars. Let's say let's say you have a twenty milligram habit, which uh, for people who are using regularly is on the low end. So let's say it's twenty dollars a day. Eventually, you get you're not able to pay twenty dollars a day, and so you transition to heroin. And so we've seen far more people on heroin than we have ever seen before because heroin's much. You know, uh, seven to ten bucks of heroin is is about eighty or ninety bucks worth of uh, oxycontin. And so um, wow. So you have. And it actually, and it really has absolutely been for a long time uh, a, a white suburban and a white rural drug uh, because white people have far more access to uh, medical care insurance. And but if, like I said, eventually uh, the prescription runs out; they don't go to the doctor anymore, or uh, they're not paying, they're not buying it in the hallways of their school or, or here on campus. And so it's a much easier transition. And so people who never would have tried heroin try heroin because they've already done that gateway move uh, to oxy. So. I, I feel that Oxycontin is probably the fourth most abused drug on this campus. Alcohol and marijuana being one and two, Adderall being three, and um, Oxy being four. So, do you I, have um, to, do you have a uh, a sense of in order? How does that go in reverse order then of the seriousness of the drug, or do you have? Do you think that there's one of those four that is maybe more? Um, more dangerous than any anything else, or they all present equal dangers. So I, I lump the I lump the problems really now as prescription drugs. Like my my a lot of my a lot of the work I'm doing in my career, um, both on the treatment level and on the policy level, is about prescription drugs. And this is completely different than uh, what it was when I got into the field. Um, but you know, we're going to take a quick break, real quick, and then we'll come back and talk about your career here at Rutgers as a counselor and and transition. This is Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum of 90.3 The Core, where we discuss issues that are important to Rutgers and the Piscataway community. I'm Chelsea Carter. This week on Core of the Matter, Mark is talking with Frank Greenangle about health issues related to substance abuse and the recovery process here at Rutgers. So here is more Core of the Matter. Well, you heard in that PSA about, uh, PSA about um, you know, if you're in need of help, where to go. We also, uh, with related to academic work, um, if you're in need of maybe more serious help, specifically related to uh, drug rehabilitation services, I think Frank Greenagle here in the studio today uh, can could be of service along with his colleagues that work with the recovery housing program here at Rutgers, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But Frank has been a counsel, uh, recovery counselor for quite some time. Um, he Right now, he's a, a recovery counselor with Counseling ADAP and Psychiatric Services. Did I get that? Did I get that correct? It's ADAP. But, oh, uh, ADAP. Yeah. And Psychiatric Services. Um, and like I mentioned as well, a uh, represents the, Rutger, the recovery housing program here at, at Rutgers. Uh, in the break, you during the break, you gave me a lot of 
um, really sort of alarming statistics about you know the rise in opiate use and just and how and how it's being used uh, among young people. And when we talked earlier uh, before the break um, over the air about you know the various factors and reasons why we would see an uptick in in usage, but so I want to talk about you know about specifically the recovery housing program. Um, you come to campus, you're young, you're you know, an 18, 19 year old student and you have an addiction problem or you acquire addiction um, while in school after enrolling here at Rutgers. What exactly does the recovery housing program allow you to do and what services are you offering for the students? So Rutgers, we're the, we're the first school in the country to have recovery housing, which we established in 1988. And we were the second school in the country to have services for people who had drug and alcohol problems, like specifically. And that was in 1983. And that was under Lisa Leitman, um, who is still here and is my boss and uh, is an extraordinarily uh, easy person to work for. So uh, so we have housing. On ca- we have uh, two houses here um, on a camp on uh, one of the f- one of the campuses here in New Brunswick, uh, tucked away. And. Um, one holds 25 people, the other hold 13. And people have to interview with me. And um, and I talk to any kind of uh, treatment providers they've had before they came to Rutgers. And uh, it's probably about half and half. Half our students are Rutgers students who got into trouble. Maybe they left for a semester. Maybe they were able to work something out and, and not have to leave for a semester. Um, and the others are actually coming from uh, either inside New Jersey or out of state to come here specifically for our program. And so... Uh, so then I'm assuming that you know, being the first in the area or, in, or being the first or second in the country, um, we're not, so in other areas, in Pennsylvania, surrounding states, they don't have, they don't have similar services. So this, is this unique to Rutgers, this type of program? Oh, uh, like I said, we were, we were the first one in, in the country, really the first one in the world. Um, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a couple schools in Minnesota that have this program. Uh, Ohio State would like to, Penn State would like to, Michigan's trying right now, Duke is trying right now. Um, Brown has a program. Um, Case Western in Ohio has a mm-hmm. program, uh, and uh, there's uh, there's a, there's probably about a dozen with housing. And uh, one of the one of the things we really want to see is we want to see uh, the, ideally we'd like to see every state have a recovery high school and a recovery college. And I think it makes much more sense for uh, state schools. So I think it makes a lot of sense for Oregon State, Ohio State, uh, you know, some of the Florida universities. Um, I think it becomes much more difficult when you have uh, private colleges and small populations. Rutgers, we're, we're really ideally situated because we're uh, a centrally located state school with, uh, you know, 58,000 students. And so we can, because any, any program you create, you're going to need to maintain you know the number of people in there so um with the specifics of housing when i came here i had one student one only one student in 2009 had an opiate problem uh uh in the fall of 2011 it was eight of 32 and the fall of this year it was 15 of 35 and so i mean and i and i just i just keep seeing this number it's just changing it's uh it's so it's just so different now and that's not to take away the problems that other substances cause it's just that this has taken over so, so uh, i have students that live in recovery housing they're sober anywhere from 90 days to 6 years the average sobriety time is 2 years that means no drugs no alcohol uh, and people say well, what and are they're like, staying and they're staying in the house for 6 sober in the house for 6 years or no. is, okay so they come here and uh, they might live on campus they might live in housing for i'd say the average Average person comes in and lives here for two years on campus and, and recovery housing. But to get move in, they have to have been sober at least 90 days. And I think the, the, long, the most amount of time someone currently has in the house 
is six years, which is quite a long time. If you're 24 years old, you have no drugs, no alcohol from 18 to 24. Uh, they all attend either AA or NA. Um, uh, they have access to counseling at the counseling center, which all students at Rutgers have access to the counseling center. And here in New Brunswick, it's 17 Senior Street, uh, which is across from the College Avenue gym. And students might say, well, is it anonymous? Is it, uh, you know, do I have to pay for it? If you paid a health service fee, you've already paid for it. And so, uh, you know, people should take advantage of it. Um, I had a drill sergeant said that uh, the only thing he turned down was his collar. So the fact that the idea that if you have already paid for something, uh, you really should consider accessing services. And, you know, people, some of your listeners may have a drug or alcohol problem this morning. Um, but, uh, I mean, there's a number of them that are just dealing with other kinds of stress, whether it's stress. Yeah, the counseling of, service is not just for substance abuse problems. You could go there for, you know, we it just, we just played a, a PSA for, you know, stress related to academics. Um, or just, you know, the stress of transitioning from life in, as a high school student to life to in college. college. Uh, or stress about your future, stress about sexual identity, stress about relationships. Uh, there's so many reasons to get counseling from a, a neutral third party who are, can... Are, are those issues also found, do you see, um, uh, in addition to the substance abuse program, are those students in the, in the recovery housing program also dealing with similar with similar issues of stress, academics? Oh, yeah, they're the same as, like, any other kids. Um and so it's just, and but the the nice thing is, is that they've they've taken care of like like I'm not dealing with people you know using or relapsing. We, our 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 relapse rates are extraordinarily low, and so they're able to to focus on other things. And uh, in the last uh, three semesters, our the recovery housing has averaged a three two three. Uh, GPA, and so it's 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 better than other Rutgers organizations. That's, that's great. A, that's that's a big culture change. Um, do you have a sense of do you? I mean, what is it about that program that you think keeps the relapse rate so low? I so you know if if if, pe- if students w- got sober and lived on a regular just regular dorms, they have about a twenty percent chance. And right, so that was the one in five statistic we mentioned right. earlier from the target market. Yeah, and 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 they got that one right. Um, with. With the recovery housing programs around the country, it's about a four and five chance. So just by living with other people who are in recovery, you have about an eighty percent chance. Uh, at Rutgers, we're at ninety five percent, and um, it's kind of like think about if you've ever worked out or if you've gone on a diet or tried to do diff- something different. It's it's much more difficult if you're doing it by yourself. You don't have anyone to talk to to deal with kind of the stresses and the frustrations uh, to stay motivated. Um, I've always worked out much better when I have a workout partner. And for the last six years, my workout partner has been my wife. So I've had the transition from working out with guys to working out with a girl. But uh, it's much... But yeah, but you're not the first person to say that. I think, you know, just having, having someone... Well, from a workout perspective, having someone there to motivate you is obviously a benefit. I mean, you go to any gym and you people working in, in tandems or... Uh, it, it's just so helpful because, you know, at like 10 a.m., she might say to me, like, do you want to go to the gym today? I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I want to do... I just want to, like, sit here. And uh, But because there's someone else there, like, it makes it easier. So with the idea of recovery... Um, Which could be very similar to the rigor needed to work out as well. I'm sure it's, I mean, yeah, it, it requires physical and mental strength. So having that motivating partner, I'm sure, is, the, is, yeah, is yeah, helpful. Yeah, you absolutely nailed it. And um, uh, it, it's just so much easier to, to do these things if you see somebody else doing it, if you have somebody else going through it with you. Uh, if you and then it's the thing about role modeling. So we, get, we, get, we, we have uh, a quarter of our students are true freshmen. Like, they got sober in high school or before college, and I think it's so great for an 18-year-old who's sober eight months to be able to see a 24-year-old senior who's been sober three and a half years and um, how that senior is getting up earlier. They ha- they have, like, a, a summer job, and they have internships, and they're going out on... Um, 
and they're, and they're going out to speak and do different things. And it, it's so much easier to to, uh, to become something if you see somebody else doing it. And so and so we get this great communal support. And the thing that makes me so proud about recovery housing is that uh, these students, uh, every single week, we are either at another college, a high school, uh, an inpatient treatment center, or an outpatient treatment center where the students tell their stories. And, um, you know, because I can go, I'm, I'm a, I do a, a a very good job on and presentations and, and teaching about things, but um, it's not the you know me coming in there at 36 years old and telling people about the you know the dangers of the drugs and these are the problems that happen and these are the things that are uh, the benefits uh, if you get sober. It's not nearly the same as having a 19 year old come in who says, "Hey, I've been sober two years and yes, I'm able to have fun on a college campus without feeling weird and." Um, and these are the things, you know, these are the things I'm doing for the summer and these are the internships and this is what I have going on. And it's just, it's just such a great thing uh, that they do. So they're, so it's not only about saving their lives, but they then go out and they touch so many other people. So it really, really is inspiring. So it, it seems like there's a lot of empathy and, you know, shared motivation between, between the residents of the house. What, what is the atmosphere like in the, in the actual recovery house? Um, I mean, Describe to me the spirit, like the, I guess, the relationships between the students. Do you see, um, I mean, I'm assuming it's successful or going well given the amount of success you've had. But what is that like for people who may be listening right now or thinking they may need a ser- similar service either here at Rutgers or somewhere else in the area? I mean, there probably is some hesitation. It's like going into a recovery housing program. Is it similar to um, rehabilitation clinics that you see even now advertised on television um but so what is the i guess the sense of the community it's a tremendous amount of fun and camaraderie and i think if someone is in the midst if they're in the throes of their addiction uh it's very hard to imagine life live it's very hard to imagine life with or without drugs or alcohol and so often I hear people say, well, what, what am I going to do for fun? You know, what is there to do now? What am I going to do on a Friday, Saturday night? I'm just going to be this weird, weird, defeated, gray, ashen person. And I think the thing that's stunning is that um, how happy and active the people in recovery are. I mean, they're doing things. And so, you know, so often people get uh, hired drunk on a Friday, Saturday night and say, I'm going to go do this, this, and this. Uh, and then never get to do it. Where our students go on... Uh, they go on long hiking trips, and uh, we ha- we have an alumni who is a, an alumnus who is motorcycling around Europe for five months. He quit his job as an engineer, uh, and he said, "I want to take like three months vacation." They said no, so he quit, and he's and he's driving around the country, uh, driving around Europe, and he'll be able to like come back. And so, there's all these neat people that are doing really, really you know neat things, and so it's it's a really it's really exciting atmosphere, and uh, it some- sometimes it seems like. You wouldn't know unless you thought about, hey, I don't see any drugs or alcohol here. You wouldn't think about it. People are up late. Uh, they're freaking out about files. They watch way too much TV. They spend too much time playing video games. So it's a, they, they get an enormous amount of takeouts, and uh, the the buildings are messy. Um, it's not not like I'm. It's not really a good advertisement for uh, you know families or policymakers out there. But the point being that it's a it's a an atmosphere not unlike what you would see of normal students in in normal dorms i mean it's minus the drugs and alcohol right minus the drugs and alcohol um uh you know frank thank you so much for being here i think your description here the recovering housing program has been really inspiring for me um if you're listening or in need uh and are in need of services or know of someone in service where can they contact you frank or where can they contact um uh so if they're on campus you can dial uh 
732-932-7884. Uh, there's a website. If you just Google uh, Rutgers CAPS, C-A-P-S, uh, that'll get you to the counseling center. Or you can just walk in, uh, and it's on 17 Senior Street. And again, if you are a student, whether full-time or part-time, and you have paid your health services fee, uh, you have access to individual counseling, uh, group counseling, uh, if need, uh, psychiatric evaluation to uh, you know test people for uh, if they need medication or if they have their medication reevaluated, which I think is always a great thing. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Frank Greenagle, a recovery counselor at ADAP and Psychiatric Services, uh, also representing the recovery housing program here at Rutgers. Thank you so much for being here, and we look forward to talking to you again. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mark. This is Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum of 90.3 The Core, where we discuss issues that are important to Rutgers and the Piscataway community. I'm Chelsea Carter. This week on Core of the Matter, Mark was just talking to Frank Greenangle about health issues related to substance abuse. And now we have Mary who will be talking to Tina Weishouse about the issue of the Keystone Pipeline. Once again, if you have any questions, you can call 732-445-9300 or you can send a core request, and we'll try our best to answer your questions. Here's more Core of the Matter. This is Mary with 90.3 The Core. Last week, I met Tina Weishouse and had a talk with her. She is a very active person against the Keystone Pipeline. We met in a coffee house in Highland Park. This is part of our conversation. Listen in. Keystone became a rallying point, a very concrete project that needs to be stopped. And back a year and a half ago, when 350.org took this issue up, many people, about 1,200 people were arrested in acts of civil disobedience at the White House, in which Keystone became a public issue, and people were willing to go to jail for it. After that, in November 2011, there was a demonstration that I was at in D.C., in which we circled the White House, demanding, beseeching the president to do the right thing, not just for Americans, but for the world, mm -hmm. and that it's imperative that America take leadership, positive leadership on the climate issue. They have not done that, uh, certainly under Bush, and they have not done it under Obama. In fact, internationally, they've been pointed to for stopping any real progress, international agreements. We went down saying to Obama, this is a chance to stand up and be on the right side of history, right mm -hmm. side of the planet, right side of humanity. Really, this is the moment to do it. And at that point, well, there was all this publicity about the fact that the first environmental impact statement was done by a subsidiary of Keystone. So it got scratched. There was an embarrassment over that, and the decision was put off. It became clear that he wasn't going to do anything before the re-election campaign. And Bill McKibben and others, Naomi Klein and other, you know, well-known spokespeople began this Do the Math tour. If you do the math, you know that if all the oil in the ground is used, 
burned, consumed as a fuel, the planet will not be able to sustain a habitable environment for all species, and including the human species. So the request, the demand, the absolute urgency of the moment is to get Keystone removed from the table and the oil that it would put out. But it's also to say, look, we cannot keep burning fossil fuels. We have to keep them in the ground where they belong. We have to switch over to renewables. The time is very late already. And 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you could talk about making that change in a reasonable way. Right now, I mean, we're feeling all the impacts already. Bill McKibben came to speak at Rutgers? Yes. So at the same time that this climate demonstration for February 17th was called as an outcome and strategy coming out of the Do the Math Tour, along with the demand for divestment mm-hmm. right, on university campuses, he was asked to speak at Rutgers, a major university, and now a site of a divestment campaign. I spoke with Shane Patel yes, yes, recently. Yes. He drew at least a thousand people. There I was know. the main room and then the overflow where I was outside in the overflow and it was standing room only in the overflow. How inspiring because <clears throat> people take every splinter group that's anybody. It's a human issue. It's about That's humanity. Right. It's about the future of humanity and mm-hmm. the future of the society that humanity creates. And so, you know, there is no divisions here. It is That's a right. global, really cross-species issue. If birds and whales and fish could organize with us, they'd be out getting arrested too. Right. Because, <laughs> because the are, need is so great. The they are paying the price m- more quickly. Mm-hmm. than I mean, the human beings are, are in too. Hurricane Sandy. Every storm is now more intense than it would have been. There's islands that are... Yeah, that are now getting to be underwater. and whole heritages of people consider moving their whole village to someplace yeah. else. Right. Maldives is, you know, concerned that they, their nation won't be able to inhabit those islands mm-hmm. anymore. So, yes, obviously people are paying the price already. And, of course, people in poorer countries with less resources pay the price So there are many species that are dying out and that have died out already as a result of a warming planet and a warming environment. And so rich or poor, you know, American or Maldavian, it doesn't matter. We're all in the same boat, literally, although the people who make profits off of fossil fuels somehow think they have a different boat. But they're wrong. It's their world too and unless they think that they're going to go live on outer space somewhere or Wally yeah right <laughs> they have such destructive capacity right now and um, they need to be stopped Bill McKibben came there was a huge turnout and we organized people who had gone to that presentation and just people in the area that wanted to speak out And as I said, the outpouring was amazing. There was just an ongoing request for tickets. You know, now you can buy your bus tickets online. Everything's electronic, Mm -hmm. so it made it easier to organize. Mm -hmm. And every day there were, you know, 10, 20, 30 people that wanted tickets. So it was a very successful organizing effort. I do believe there were, you know, close to 50,000 people down there. It was were you there? I wasn't there. Yeah. yeah. You know, it was a cold day. 
It was a bitter day. And it was the kind of day where you wake up in the morning and you say, mm, I think I'll go back to sleep. But, but in fact, the buses were full. Maybe there were three or four or five people that didn't show up, but that's always the fact. Somebody right. gets sick or whatever. And it was a tremendously spirited, exciting day in which you really got the sense that a movement was growing, that mm -hmm. a movement around this was growing, not just environmental groups, that there were people from organizations that don't normally speak on this issue, so organizations were going cross-issue. Right? That's right. That's what's good about 350.org. Yes. Yeah. Everyone well, comes to the table. Right. And I, I don't even think it's 350. I think it's just the period of time now right. that we understand that you can't just talk about women's rights. You have to talk about women's rights in a warming planet. You right. have to talk about poverty in a warming planet. Right. You know, you have to talk about all of that stuff because it's all connected. Mm -hmm. So climate will affect everybody's issue and everybody has a stake in making sure that the planet it doesn't completely overheat and you know we lose our uh, our future. You know, so it's not just our grandchildren's future, our great-grandchildren, it's our future, too. People in New Jersey whose houses were destroyed in Staten Island and the Rockaways by Hurricane Sandy know that now. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a blast for me that Governor Christie will not speak about climate change. He only wants to speak about how much effort he's putting into helping rebuild people's homes. Well, that's nice, and I was It's noble, yeah. It's noble, but it won't help for the next uh, hurricane and the next disaster. Well, you know, people say, oh, well, you can't attach any one climate event to climate change, to global warming. But that is the wrong way to look at it now. Climate change and global warming is the context in which every climate event is happening. Right. So every climate event will be more energized and intense as a result of both the increased sea surface temperatures mm -hmm. as well as the increased amount of humidity and moisture in the air. Mm -hmm. So the context of global warming means that all events will be supercharged by mm -hmm. this context. Right. You know, I got involved in uh, 2006. I saw the movie An Inconvenient Truth, mm -hmm. and I was very affected by it, and uh, very quickly I got connected to Al Gore and was trained by him the to The Climate get, Reality Project? That's what it's called now. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. Okay. So, so I was trained to give talks on climate mm -hmm. change, on global warming, and um, so I gave hundreds of those talks in those years, but then it became... Uh, kind of out of fashion to talk about climate change around 2009 after the um, Copenhagen um, international meeting in which nothing happened and they created some scandals around emails and it, it was um, it just the, the, the issue of climate change just became a non-issue for media it wasn't even mentioned in this presidential election at all well, not even mention, not one question. This is the future of humanity. And <laughs> it's like, are they kidding? I mean, 
and it's terribly scary because they have the power and we have to take that power away from them which is why building a movement and you know in the sense of keystone being the symbol mm -hmm. and you know it is definitely bad for the planet and mm -hmm. it will add much more uh, carbon to the atmosphere than even normal oil because it's so dirty in the sense of uh, how much carbon it's going to emit when it burns. It's a symbol for a larger dilemma at this point of how we move from total dependence on fossil fuels out of that into safe renewables, safe in terms of the climate for not creating any additional heat. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what's it going to take for the oil industry to say we should start divesting our own money. Well, I think there was this period, maybe 2006 to 2008 or 9, BP, they changed their name to Beyond Petroleum from British Petroleum. Right. But there was some small commitment to begin to invest in their renewables. resources in renewables, but that didn't go anywhere, and their profits are higher than ever, and even you have this terrible Gulf of Mexico um, right. oil spill. You'd think that would stop them. No, they're bidding now on oil leases again, BP. <laughs> it was really inspiring to see that people were willing to come out on such a cold day and to be so energized and committed to the issue. So 50,000 people is the beginning of a movement. Mm -hmm. Then the environmental impact statement came out, that draft statement, which said, oh, no problem, we don't have to worry about this. And who is the author of that? The State Department authorized that study, mm -hmm. and but I think that what came out was that parts of the study were written by companies that were supported by ExxonMobil okay. and Koch brothers. Mm -hmm. And then there was a pledge of resistance that Credo Action, which is an online group, put out a, a pledge of resistance asking for people to pledge that they would commit civil disobedience to stop the pipeline. Mm -hmm. And within two or three days, I think there were 31,000 people that signed online all over the country. So that was an enormous response. All right. And I think some of that which is being planned is ultimately civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. But first, there's a draft comment period on the Keystone. And I think there's one day of public hearing or one location of public hearing. You can check that in Nebraska, mm -hmm. which is a key state where the pipeline will mm -hmm. go through. And actually, the Nebraska governor first opposed the pipeline and then signed off on it because they changed aquifers that was going through. You know if there's a pipeline, there's going to be spills. You just know that. So there's a comment period. There are people are being asked to send in written comments and to go to Nebraska and ensure that people in Nebraska will demonstrate, but also it may be a site of gathering for people really committed and able to mm -hmm. travel. Then there's a lot of people working on divestment simultaneously. So mm -hmm. there's an attempt to stop the Keystone and do whatever it takes. As I said, at least 31,000. It's probably way 